Hello, everyone. Uh, so today's Bible reading, we've got a couple passages. Um, the first one, as you can see, is from verses 1 to 17, and the next will be from 40 to 46. And you can follow along with me on the screen behind me. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting. And you will eat all the food you want and live in the safety of your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred And a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on with, I will look on you with favour, and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will keep my covenant with you. You will still, you will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you. And I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands... And if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. And then the second passage starting from verse 40. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which may be hostile toward them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths, while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins, 
because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. Before their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the decrees, the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. I want you to think back to the 1950s. Um, Maybe you were there. But in the 1950s, uh, there was a, a, a tribe living in the northeast Congo, of Afri- Congo, Congo in Africa, and it was culturally, geographically isolated. The language, way of life, it was one of those, you know, real, no one's ever been there type jungle communities. An anthropologist, British anthropologist, went there and he learnt the language and befriended someone by the name of Kenji. They formed a friendship and the anthropologist would go to and from this tribe and Kenji would often go with him. One day, um, Kenji, having never really left his tribe, they went out onto the plains. And they drove out and he was spe- Kenji, Kenji was speechless. Just the vast expanse. And on the horizon, he said, I see insects dotted over there. And the anthropologist um, said, they're not insects, they're buffalo. Now, Kenji had seen buffalo before up close for his whole life. He knows what a buffalo is, so for him, that was nonsense. How can a buffalo look like an insect? It just doesn't make sense. He just had no vocabulary to describe what he was seeing. He just said, that's an insect. And as they got closer, he saw the anthropologist was right. Having never seen it before at a distance, he had no concept for what he'd experienced. Insects and buffaloes, anthropologists and tribesmen, how you look at things, how you look at a situation makes all the difference, doesn't it? And that's a fitting way to think about our last talk in Leviticus, actually. In chapter 26, we see God giving his people, in the closing parts of this wonderful book, his vision for them. It's the outcome, if you will, of all the inputs from Leviticus. This is what Leviticus 26 does. What can they expect if they remain faithful to their God? And it's mind-blowing, actually, because what God describes is this return to Eden-like state. The key verse, as we saw in the kids' talk, is verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. Just as God walked with Adam in the garden, so God will now walk again with his people It's incredible. God walking with them, enjoying a flourishing life under his loving rule and care. That's the vision God has that he's laying out for in Leviticus. We see come to a conclusion in chapter 26. And that's the vision that God has for you and me as well. The big idea is God's vision for us, his life under his loving rule and care, enjoying the blessing of belonging to him. It's life under his loving rule and care, enjoying the blessing of belonging to him. But that's only the first 13 verses of this wonderful chapter. You may have noticed, actually, it's more heavy with curses. It wasn't all covering us in sunshine, showering us with good times. 
there's a warning here. Just as the blessings are, were very literal in the land, so the curses will be very literal as they're spewed out of the land that they're going into to live. If the blessing is God walking with them, the curses are distance and separation from God, their Father. There's nothing quite as horrible as a strained relationship, distance, separation. Even if you're in the same room, the tension's still there. So let's explore this more. God's vision, these blessings, these curses, and we're going to use the same outline we have had the last five weeks in Leviticus. We'll start at looking at where we've gone, what's the story so far, then we'll look deeper in chapter 26 and see who this God is that we're, we're learning about, that we're exploring, his character, his nature. And then we'll end with the how much more of Jesus. Because we don't live today, as verse 46 says, uh, under this law at Sinai with Moses. Instead, Jesus, as we'll see, ended up becoming this curse for us. And it's in him we see God's vision for humanity reaching its apex, not with economic prosperity in a geographical place, but with a new creation. Walking with Jesus in this life, And being truly blessed to have no more sin or evil in our world as the goal to where it's heading. So, let's look at the story so far. Leviticus is all about living with a holy God. The question we've been asking week after week is, how can sinful people live with this holy God? And we've seen the answer, bit by bit, through 25 chapters so far. God sets up priests and holy days and laws and sabbaths and sacrifices to remove impurity, to forgive and to cleanse us. Why? They're needed for us to be holy, to live with God, because God is holy. We've been made holy to live holy. We saw that last week in Leviticus 19. What does it look like to live the day-to-day nitty-gritty life if you've been made holy? These maintain an already relationship we saw. You don't do these for God to accept you and love you. By grace they've been saved. Grace comes first. They've been brought to God through the Exodus, and now they're going to live as his people. And in Leviticus, uh, Exodus 20, they all say, yes, we love you to bits, God, we'll do everything you say. And so Leviticus is born after that. So the question is, how do we live with a holy God? Well, you've got to be holy. And Leviticus sets this up. And then right here at the end of the book, in chapter 26, God says, it's actually a blessing to live this way too. Being holy is a good thing. Capturing God's vision for life, his intent for humanity is joyful and wonderful. And that's a good reason to obey. Psalm 16.11 echoes this whole sentiment. You made known to me the path of life. You fill me with the joy of your presence. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures forever. Notice the order. You've made known to me the path of life. The joy is in your presence. And from that position is eternal pleasure with you. So let's look at this now in chapter 26. Three things. Uh, The first one is we see that living this way, living God's way, brings blessing. A 75-year study of well-being at Harvard University concluded with these words. 75 years, this is what they came up with about well-being for us as humans. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier period. 75 years, that's what they concluded. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier. Throughout the experiment, throughout this time, they thought the happiness of the subjects would depend upon these things. Fame, wealth, 
high achievement, financial security. But in reality, the happiest, healthiest people ended up prioritising relationships with family, friends and the community. And similar studies keep coming back to the same thing over and over again. But in all of them, there is another part that keeps cropping up that most researchers don't know what to do with. Benson is a researcher in the early 2000s, late 90s, and he came up with this as well, and he left it on the floor because he didn't know what to do with it, and eventually picked it up again, and he called it spirituality or transcendence. Good relationships, yes, keep us happier and healthy, but being connected to something bigger is also part of that too. It's actually good for us. And God knows this. God knows that the connection to him is part of what makes life worth living. And he prioritizes that at the very beginning of this chapter. Look in verse 1 and 2 with me. He says, Do not make idols or set up an image of a sacred stone for yourselves. Do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. Why? I am the Lord your God. And in Israel's day, an idol was very literally a carved stone or block of wood. Bowing down to them was all about... Um, giving that thing power and authority over your life. I'll turn to this one for the harvest. I'll turn to that one for success. I'll turn to this one so I can have a child, that sort of thing. An idol is, at one level, anything removed from under God's authority where it could be a blessing to others, but it becomes our life, turning a good thing into a God thing. And typically, you don't make a conscious decision to do this. You you don't wake up today, I'm sure, and say, today I will be an idolater. Um, It's a bit more subtle than that. We absorb idols from swimming in the water around us, hoping to find ourselves. We pick things up. Idols are around us today. We've upgraded them, of course. Technology, our reputation, work, family, clothing, how people view me. We have them. We, We live with idols all the time, but they were never created to have that level of authority in our life and they can't bear it either. It's a weak scaffolding. And so right at the beginning, before God even talks through what these blessings are, he sets up and says, guys, you can't enjoy a flourishing life without the spiritual. So keep me in the number one spot, revere my sanctuary and observe my Sabbaths. The rest, the pattern of life that God has set, this is what he's saying, me and how I've ordered the world, keeping the spiritual and connected, you and me, that's what matters first. And then with God in their rightful place, in his rightful place in their lives, what does this blessed vision of humanity look like? Well, it's actually about two of the most basic human needs, provision and protection. Verses 3 to 13. Surrounded by God's space, here's the picture. Being cared for by their divine king, who's walking with them. In verse 9, he says, I'll look on you with favor, I'll make you fruitful, again, Garden of Eden language, and increase your numbers, I'll keep my covenant with you. Now these blessings you may have picked up are very physical. That's okay. We're physical people. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. We need physical things to survive. God's interested in flourishing the lives of his people. It's how God made us. The Bible does include material things and wealth in its teaching about blessings. What it doesn't teach us is that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. It doesn't teach us you have a right to have things and stuff, or health or wealth. 
It never teaches us that faith unlocks all of this. A pastor in Lebanon, who I've been um, stalking online, actually, in a nice way. We call it following and friendship, but it's really stalking. But He said this in response to someone saying to him that God's heart is to bless you with healing and promotion and material things. This is what he said in Lebanon. He said, oh, okay, when your city explodes, the econo- economy collapses, currency crashes, money stolen, can't get food, water, medicine, petrol, electricity, there's a pandemic, it's an empty theology. What's true and better is that God is still God in it all. What's true and better is that God is still God in it all. Which is why the greatest blessing in Leviticus 26 isn't the fruit trees. It's something much better. It it starts small and just keeps climbing up bigger. Look at what it says at the end in 11 and 12. I will place my residence among you. I will walk among you. The blessing that humanity needs most of all is a close relationship with God. And that's a challenge today because it it flips our whole mindset of how we may approach work or life or living um, to come to the realization that walking with God is the greatest joy we can have as people. With him, connected to him, knowing him. We work for material things. We find value in what we have. Our homes, our accounts, all our things. But the king is better than the blessing. He's not unkind in the fact that he knows what we need, and we'll get to that in the end, but but right now I want us to sit in this space that what matters, what this is saying is that God himself is what the blessing is. Here's a story which might help. Um, It's about a carrot. One day there was a, a, a king who ruled over everything in the land, and a gardener grew an enormous carrot. Huge, just massive. And he brought the carrot to the king and he said, King, Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or I ever will grow. Therefore, I wanted to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. And the, the king was touched and, and he discerned the man's heart. And so the man said, that's it. And as he went, turned to go, the king said, wait a minute. You're a good steward of the earth. I'll give you this plot of land um, freely as a gift so you can garden it just for you. And he was amazed. Um, he delighted. He went home rejoicing. And, and standing in the court was another man. And he, he thought to himself, my goodness, if that's what you get for a carrot, what do you get for something else? So the next day, this, this other man came back and said, my lord, my king, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect. And the king looked at him and discerned his heart and said, thank you so much. And he took the horse and he simply dismissed him. And this guy was perplexed and he, he said, oh, hold on a minute. Carrot, horse, land, what's going on? So let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. Are we seeking the king and the blessing of walking with him or only the blessing of the fruit trees that he has, to use the language of Leviticus 26. You see, the life that God made us to enjoy is walking in rich fellowship with him, and he'll care for us. 
at the beginning. Hence why he says, I am the Lord, have no other idols. And then after that, verse 13, there's this massively long, shocking, horrific warning that happens if they reject God. And he cautions them with these curses. And it's a really hard list to read. It's not pleasant reading. You don't want to sit there on a on a nice Sunday morning and read this necessarily. I mean, look at how horrible verse 30 is. The I wills have been lovely so far, but this one says, I will reject you. This is God speaking to his people. It's not often that God ever has to use that language. He's warning here, like a parent does to her children, the consequences for behavior, for evil, for rebellion. And it's a contrast. You see, if the blessed life is this return to Eden, then the curse is like a living hell. It begins with fear and defeat and destruction and anxious hearts, and it just spirals down, verse after verse after verse. And the lowest point is horrific, eating their kids. Ezekiel 5 actually mentions all of this happening. History shows God's people do reject him and they do get that far down. It's a sad, horrific state to be in. The curses will come when they fall into this heretical posture before God. I deserve God's divine favor. We demand it. I've done the right thing. I'll live how we want and God must bless me and they presume upon God's goodness in their land. We don't need God, just his things and his stuff. They expect the blessing of what God will give. And so what do you make of these these verses? Do we write them off? Well, that's just Leviticus. It's not relevant today. Is it just the response of a knee-jerk, angry God who's not very kind? You have to understand, though, it's one thing to be in a family with imperfect people. It's another thing for your spouse to abandon the marriage altogether. These curses aren't for imperfection. These are for abandonment. Look at verse 15. God says, If you reject my decrees, abhor my laws, fail to carry out my commands, and so violate my covenant or agreement, see, God's heavy hand is there to help them see their sin, to seek him out, even if they rebel, because the aim of this is restoration. I'll discipline you. I want to restore you. Because they're not breaking a law. They're breaking a relationship, which is always worse. Maybe you've had the unpleasant experience of going to court before. And you go to court and the judge, minor misdemeanor, perhaps traffic lights or or whatever it is, and and, and the judge would would fine you and you you get loser to merit point in this case, and then you get off and you go back to your life and it's everything settled. Legally, it's settled. Done. But relational damage isn't quite as easy as just settling it before a court. It's much long-lasting, isn't it? God's describing a reality that he doesn't want them to live in, nor should they want to live in, because the next part of it is that by God's grace, they don't have to. As much as there's this blessing and this awkward lot of cursing, there is hope of restoration at the last part. We heard them read out to us. Maybe you've been confronted with a mistake before. I I have many times. And if you're like me, humility is not your first response. Normally, it's an excuse or denying or blaming. That's far more natural. I remember when I worked in IT just after high school, I went to the wholesaler to buy computer parts once a week and, and in the car park, lots of fancy cars in this particular place in the city. And one of them was a Lamborghini this day and it was a pokey car park. And I thought, whoa, let's not hit the Lamborghini. Like, let's, I've got a, a Nissan hatchback here. I want to stay my distance. And I was watching it as I was turning into the car park. I didn't hit the Lamborghini, but I did hit the car next to it. Um, 
And it was a Lamborghini's fault, not mine. Because if he didn't park in that car park, I wouldn't have had to be so worried about not hitting it. And I wouldn't have hit the other car, you see. It's, 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 just my, it's your fault. It's not mine. I'm not going to accept responsibility. And it was a $750 damage bill for the other car. What about you? Denying is far more natural to deny and blame, isn't it? But there does come a time, and it did, when I knew that I'd done the wrong thing. I wasn't being careful. I wasn't looking where I was driving. Simple. And such a time will come to God's people as well. Look at verse 40 and 45. If they will confess their sins, their unfaithfulness, their hostility towards me, what will happen? I will remember. I'll remember my covenant. I am the Lord. I'm not going to forget this. It's amazing. If it's amazing God will punish so severely, think it even more amazing he would show mercy and forgiveness to such evil people. People who have walked away from their relationship, committed spiritual adultery. It's one thing that he could say sorry. As a father, father say, let me think about you for a minute. You may have heard your kid or said to you, you will say sorry to your brother for hitting him or taking the toy or whatever it is. And, and you know in what they say if they really do mean it. And 99% of the time, I'm sure, it's just, I'm sorry. And as a dad, you see your child do that and you think, oh, it breaks my heart. Not only have you done the wrong thing, but you're not even sorry. You're sorry you got caught. You can tell they don't mean it. But it's another thing entirely to hear them say sorry with humility. And I've found, and maybe true of you, these are the moments of gold when not only are you very proud of your children, they've got it, but it grows them as well. And verse 44 says it so beautifully that no matter how bad things get for God's people, God says, when they're in the land of their enemies, I won't reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant. God's saying, no matter how bad it gets, there will be punishment, but I'll never break my end of the deal. You have a guarantee, team, that no matter what you do, my agreement will stand because of my faithfulness, not your faithfulness. Do you see the beautiful hope there? The very thing they do to God, reject him, he will not do to them. He will not break his covenant. He remains faithful. God's intent is blessing, not cursing. God will remain ready to open the door to welcome them back if they would only humble their hearts before him. Which means the character of God we're starting to see from this chapter is that even if we're unfaithful to God, God is faithful to himself. God is faithful to himself. And that's the foundation for their hope, do you see? It sounds so easy to say, but God is faithful. To know God is faithful, even when we are not. Is that not one of the most precious character traits of God you could ever imagine? God is faithful to himself. Which means the basis for our acceptance isn't on what we do, but on God being faithful with his own inputs. With Jesus' death, with Jesus' resurrection, with the Holy Spirit at work in us today. Through, the, through Leviticus, his grace, his law, the sacrifices, the priests, the holy days, the holy living, the blessing, is that God will walk with his people again, yes. Ezekiel graphically tells that things get worse before they get better. God will actually walk away from his people. He leaves the temple, Ezekiel 10. 
But God is faithful to himself, and he's still at work in all the darkness, and he's at at work in the darkness of your life right now. So he arrives on the scene, he writes himself into history, and he walks with his people again, physically, literally, with and in the person of Jesus Christ. Living, breathing, eating, sleeping, healing, blessing, crying, making people clean, undoing the effects of evil and sin, peeling back the fabric of time and space and saying, this life that Jesus is kicking around here living, this is what it's going to be like with God. The best is yet to come. You see, it's not a a land with borders that brings blessing. It's not fruit trees and protection from enemies that God is going to secure for us in this life. Utopia is not found in health and wealth. The greatest blessing is walking with God in all spheres of life because he's faithful to himself. And the best is yet to come. Because he'll generously give us everything he wants to. Some of you, God will give lots, and you can attribute God's faithfulness in terms of physical things very readily. And others for you, there'll be nothing physical, but you know God's faithful because of his character and the attitude he's given you and the mindset you've got in order to get through something. And even at the very lowest part that you've been in, God is still faithful because it's about his character. No matter your lot, God is faithful. And we see that most clearly in Jesus. Look at what Paul said. You could pick many verses. Here's one I came across. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you want to see God's faithfulness on display clearly? High definition, 2020 vision, then look to Jesus. Because the how much more of Jesus is that he takes on our curse to bring us God's blessing. Yes, Leviticus 26, God's vision, God's people in God's space. But it's like looking at that buffalo from a distance. What Leviticus sees from a distance, Jesus brings into greater focus and clarity. Because the curse of sin keeps interrupting God's intent for us and his people. What's so wonderful is that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he interrupts sin and evil for us. He becomes the curse to make us as he is, holy, righteous. Because the value of his life is worth all the lives for all time. In Jesus, God keeps his end of the covenant. And he's inviting us into that vision for that life. Every day as you kick around, Jesus is faithful. Jesus once said to us, do not worry about what we shall eat or drink or what we shall wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. Everyone else runs around after them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's what Leviticus 26 talks about, isn't it? Seek God first and his kingdom and his righteousness. And day by day, you'll see God's faithfulness in your life. And Leviticus 26 reminds us too, humbly confessing our sin, revering God as holy, he is faithful. And as Leviticus closes on that wonderful call that God is faithful, we'll close too. And I pray that you would live tomorrow and every day seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness above all else because everything else you need will come from your generous God's hand. Don't be like the carrot guy or the the, the horse guy. Not like the carrot guy. Let's pray. 
Father, you are our generous God. And the blessing of knowing you and walking with you and being forgiven and made holy and clean is wonderful because you are faithful. And we can't say that enough. You are faithful, God. Even when we are not, our life is shaky. You're the faithful one. You're the one in whom we build our life upon. And, and may that be our testimony and the, the words upon our lips that today as we go into our week, we would seek your kingdom, you, your presence, your, your glory, that, that we would live loving you as our holy one. And that, God, all we need, all the struggles that we have in this life, you would generously provide for as we seek after you. We don't just want the blessings you give, we want you, Lord. So help us to live hungry for you day by day. And we ask that you would give everything we need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. Amen.